had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome to Center for Transformation Change Radio. I'm Dr. Kathy Bear with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Becky Martinez. And we are delighted to welcome our dear friend, Dr. Tanya Williams. Some of us have known you over 20 years. Maybe both of us have. Um, You are not new to our show. You came on at least two, if not three times in the last three years, talking about dismantling racism and internalized racism and self-care. And I can't remember all the times. Dr. Williams, we are so excited to have you back. I love how you've talked in your bio about born and raised Houston, second home, New York City and Brooklyn. And I know I really valued when my wife and I lived in New York that we actually lived there at the same time. And so your joy of New York, we got to share um, over 30 years work in diversity, equity, and social justice. I saw that and I felt a lot older. Um, I first knew you and Becky probably did too when you were in higher ed and just several different institutions, great EDI, social justice work, and particularly as a senior diversity officer at Union Theology Seminary. But your work in intergroup dialogue has been significant. Your work at Leadership for decades. Your work I'm with feeling Posse. <laughs> I'm wanting you to because you both are around the same age, but still a lot younger than me. And just when I just realized how you've contributed um, U.S. internationally, how you've contributed to my learning and growing um, just a dear, dear friend. And we get to play at the Social Justice Training Institute, the three of us, mm-hmm. coming up in maybe six weeks. Uh, that immersion in race. I don't know if it's number 44. I've lost track. I don't know anymore. Yeah. <sighs> but you both are some of the next-gen faculty that has just been significant in helping us reshape and stay current. I can't wait to learn with you both again. <sighs> I need a deep breath. And I'm jealous. I think you were just at some Broadway shows these last few weeks. It's just so much I miss. But mostly we're excited to welcome you. Your work for dismantling classes and particularly with class action. And if folks don't know class action to take a look online, I'm sure Tanya will talk about it. Your work with nonprofits as well as the full breadth of corporate foundations, higher ed, K-12. So we just can't wait to learn with you and have listeners for your perspective of how do we meet organizations where they are, particularly nonprofits, and help them create anti-classist, liberating environments. And yeah. Dr. Becky Martinez. 
Yeah, I'm so excited to be in this conversation, um, especially as we think about class and centering class, because we don't do that very often. Um, and so we, we think about organizationally and even individually, right? We always talk about class and we never talk about class and like mm-hmm. holding the complexity of that. Um, and so, you know, we have some questions and this is going to just be a time for us to be in conversation around. Uh, so we want to open... Um, we want to open around, so what's your class story, right, or pieces of your class story to share with us and the folks listening? Well, y'all know how happy I am to be here and to spend my time getting to hang out with y'all and uh, talk about the things we care about. Um, my class story is, it's interesting, like, so one, uh, it is is important to note, and this is like the complexity of class, Uh, I live in New York City now. I live specifically in Brooklyn, raised in Houston, Texas. Um, And so my class story actually begins uh, before me in that my um, grandparents, both of them came from the large families of, I think, at least eight, nine. I think my grandmother had um, was one of 10 And I say my class story begins before me because um, my my mother always tells the story that my grandfather's like brothers, which I think there were six of them, built their original home, like built my my mom and like that family's my maternal family's home on some land, and they built it with their hands. Um, they also, in Houston, there's the neighborhood that I grew up in was an unincorporated black area of Houston that was outside the city limits at the time. Now it's been incorporated by Houston. Um, But like there was land, my my father's father had land. And so in this unincorporated, so these intersections of race and class and geography matter, absolutely matter. Um, And so my class story, I'll pick up with myself now, uh, is that I was raised in that neighborhood. And by the time that I was uh, born, um, that neighborhood had been incorporated by Houston. And so I grew up in Acres Homes. Um, I first lived, we lived in another black neighborhood in Houston. We moved over to this neighborhood um, when I was six. And it was because of the land that my grandmother, grandfather had. I grew up in a, a really, a house that my parents were working on owning because it was a black neighborhood. It also, like the taxes, I, I have so many stories about like how taxes are changing now that it is being gentrified and the developers are coming in and what my parents' home is, is going to be worth and what they're being asked for it now, like for them to sell versus what developers could actually get for it. Okay, all these pieces, these intersecting. My class story is that I grew up with two parents, two working class parents, um, but in a home. Uh, and uh, my mom was a substitute teacher. My dad worked in a factory. 
Uncle Ben's, I always shout out Uncle Ben's, which is now Ben's, it's, they dropped the uncle. Um, and it was a poor working class neighborhood. Like our house might have been one that was, we were working towards ownership. The house, da- like two, two houses down was, um, you know, falling in house across the street might've, well, actually Miss Casey was not, but the house next to Miss Casey might have had uh, drugs as a, a a place where drug addicts and and users would go, and so that was all around. And my specific house um, was very stable, and I was bused out of that neighborhood to wealthy white schooling, and so I saw the what we had, which I always note as like, we had a neighborhood that had no sidewalks and Mm -hmm. I'd make my way across Houston and like ride the bus in and out of these neighborhoods and end up in a space that not only did they have sidewalks, they had gates that I had to like lift my head over, you know, try to see what's back there. Um, And the (laughs) wind, these moments when the gate was opening, I'm like, oh man, I want to see that house because it was massive. Um, so class was about money, about things, the, the markers, um, clothing was about housing, neighborhood, cars, things like that. And only later did I, you know, start to open my understanding of class to be about rank, education, exposure, all of those things, um, I have, I'll fast forward because I want to actually talk to y'all about that stuff, <laughs> but I'll fast forward to, I live as a single person, which these are class intersected, like the identity intersections as a single person to be able to live in New York City um, and rent in New York City um, and live quite comfortably. I don't own my place, but live quite comfortably i'm i am easily upper middle class now yeah Mm. oh goodness um i don't know if i've ever heard the um story of you being bust into i don't know if i this is the first time that it's um like oh i'm curious um with that because there's the uh, i'm reading uh, the privileged poor right now um, which talks about um, people who grew up poor um, or working class, but they then have the opportunity to go to different kind of schooling before college. And so they've learned some things culturally around class, um, whereas then they call it the double disadvantaged, right? So people who haven't had that experience and then they go into, and they talk about elite institutions, but like they don't know language or values or navigating I'm curious, did you get any of those kind of like, yeah, that socialization in that Mm. space, right? Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And say the name of that book again, because I'm like, that's one that I want to read. The Privileged Poor? Yes. Um, So I absolutely got it. And that's the class piece around the exposure. Mm -hmm. Um, It's class culture. I, I got easy exposure to that. I think about my fifth grade year, um, Kathy, you mentioned going to Broadway shows. 
my fifth grade year, because I, I was bused to what in Houston they called magnet schools, it was their version of integration. Um, and you had to essentially, my mom, <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, that, that was illegal at the time. It still is illegal. Somebody went to jail for doing this. My mother used my grandmother's address to get us into magnet elementary schools. Um, and so I went to an arts elementary school. My fifth, I went to arts elementary school, which spoke to having after school programs that had to do with arts. But then my fifth grade year, because I was already in this area of town, I went to a Vanguard school that I feel like every, it felt like every other week I was in somebody's theater watching some show for children. I know it wasn't that often, but fifth grade, particularly, I had so many field trips of seeing theater, seeing music, understanding the symphony, seeing all the things now that I know, now that I understand it are valued in a white supremacist culture and a upper middle to owning class culture. And so I could make my way in, even with the skin and the working classness that I had, I had the language and the really interesting, yeah, I could write a whole, <laughs> whole book about this living in multiple cultures mm, yeah. because not only from a race perspective, from a class perspective, um, during a week I lived in this like wealthy white, you know, my dad was able to pick me up after basketball and volleyball practice because he worked a shift job. My other friends, parents, their dads might come to a game that, and they had, you know, suits and, you know, my dad had a uniform to go with his job. Um, but then when I went to church on the weekends, which was in a poor and working class black neighborhood, uh, I watched and interacted with young people and kids who didn't have the same exposure that I had. And so my sister and I were often, and sometimes in our family, when we went to family reunions, we were often the kids that were made fun of because we talked funny or because um, we didn't quite fit in. And some of that was about class. Most of that was about class because it wasn't about race. We were part of the same family, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks for bringing that out, Barry, uh, Barry. Becky. <laughs> I appreciate the sharing and the in-depthness of that and the clarity around it wasn't a, like it wasn't it was mostly class right as you're navigating your family dynamics and how that can show up and how we can then internalize that and, and do need to do some work. My wonder I mean so many questions but when you were with those upper middle class whites my guess is mostly all white teachers Mostly. I did have a couple of uh, Black teachers, second and third grade. I was wondering how you were treated, because uh, at the intersect of race and class, particularly as a Black child that was, quote, bust in those times, all those biases, assumptions, stereotypes. So I just wonder if the same kind of negative treatment slash bullying. And I'm also curious how um, older adults treated you kind of the assumption if you're not quite smart enough. That's the story I made up, but I don't even know if I'm close. 
So this is another class thing. So, and it's an intersection of race. Um, my mother made all, if not most, if not all of our clothing when we were young. Um, and when we did, I, I do remember that we would have a shopping trip at the beginning of the school year and we would buy our clothes for the year. Um, and I, 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 the story that I, that I want to connect to with you, Kathy, is that I think we were actually probably treated as novelty <clears throat> because of race, but because we were always neat, we were always well-dressed, um, our hair with my mother would get up and do our hair every morning. Wow. Um, that was about class markers. And so I, I know that it was, you know, like my children, my black child is going to have to deal with racism already. And we're going to get in front of that, hopefully with these class markers that have my child be seen as acceptable or um yeah yeah my mother my parents both both of my parents were very specific <laughs> and I, i'll tell a story about my dad my father would never let us leave the house with curlers in our hair or um jogging pants and that was about class the intersection of class and, and race and we used to be so like of course, we would never do that. We say that now, but we were like, why are they so tight? And what is that about? And I know that it, I now know it was about class, race, intersections. I don't remember being treated. And as a child, it wasn't that I was treated poorly. It was more about novelty, I think. That Tanya is a good kid, is acceptable kid is a quiet kid. I was mostly a quiet kid. Um, and so it was like, yes, Tanya can um, come and play over someone's house or, you know, is accepted in those ways. I will say, and this is a class race intersection, and I still am dealing with the, <laughs> the leftover internalization of this. I had a birthday party. I had to be maybe 12 and I had a whole bunch of white friends at school. My birthday's in the summer in July. Um, my neighborhood was considered one of the rough neighborhoods in Houston. All my family came, uh, but none of my friends from school. For one, shout out to Julie Callaman. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. How do you think those messages show up in your work, in your daily? Um, that you got, or have you shifted those, like hmm. these messages that you received, how do you navigate and how do you see it, like those navigating in organizations? Yeah. I'm curious. So this kind of taps into my uh, understanding of class and classism and how that kind of showed up for me. Um, that really came by way of, you know, going to classism workshops when I was in grad school. Um, and Felicia Skell, speaking of class action, uh, the founder of that organization, um, 
police ran uh, classes and workshops. And I didn't know that I had so much internalized shame um, around classism and, and how that was impacting my, you know, even after going, I was a, I've been a public school kid the whole time, but even after a four-year undergrad degree, a two-year master's, and moving into a doctoral program, I didn't understand how that internalized classism was impacting the ways in which I um, showed up in, in my work, in my teaching. I remember doing a workshop or a, a class, a 210 class, Education 210, which was a foundations course, undergrad course. And we did a segment on classism and um, I did an exercise that had people, like it was essentially a class caucus exercise and then had them kind of report out on some questions that I had included in a caucus. And the <laughs> middle, upper middle and owning class folks, when they stood up, the anger that I had towards them, mm -hmm. it was stunning to me, absolutely stunning. And I think probably that same week, I went to the class action office and said, so I need to get involved um, hmm. and do some work. And so that work with class action in grad school, continually doing that work, um, absolutely helped me get in front of uh, and explore the ways in which my classism um, and continue to explore the ways in which my classism shows up. And so pretty early in my career, I never bought into wearing professional clothing, whatever that was, because I was challenging classism. Um, jeans, anyone who has worked with me knows that jeans have been part of my way of being. Uh, and because I'm, I'm wanting to challenge it internally, but I'm also wanting to challenge it externally. It's like, so if you think that my clothes have anything to do with the amount of um, insight and thinking that I've done, I want you to feel free to challenge me on that. So small way to get in, but I've tried to really work with my internalized classism and when I see classism, um, when I do my work. I grew up more middle professional class, but what I relate to is being angry at folks that had more money. And so the individual level, interpersonal, jealousy, judgment, and not the system. And I wonder if this internalized classism of you're not good enough, if you worked harder, you could get more, how much of those beliefs are still in so many folk across many class levels. And then this invisibility, Becky, that you mentioned earlier, we talk about class, but we really don't, acknowledging the systemic classism. And I know we just have a couple minutes to break and um, didn't know if any of that brought up anything. And because um, when we come back, I really want to delve into nonprofit industrial complex and how actually nonprofits and foundations support systemic classism, even if individual people in them may not believe so. How's that for a new idea that I would <laughs> love to talk with you about? 
That's it. So, and this is, I always tell folks like, you know, if we can get our brains to be at a micro meta level and move in and out of those, um, I think we have to understand the ways in which oppression works, like in granular ways so that we can do the macro micro. Um, I can think about internalized classism and how that internalized classism is going to then, you know, in some ways instruct me on how to write a policy and uh, going to my internalized classism is going to have me view my um, colleague in a particular way so that, you know, our HR guides don't actually um, fit this colleague, or I won't hire this colleague because they don't use the right language. And, and so that move of micro macro, um, I think is, is super important. Uh, and I think, you know, nonprofit industrial complex organizations in general built around uh, systems of, of oppression. And so classism is absolutely present, the maintenance of all of this. Um, so would be happy to keep talking about it. So that's the commercial to come back for the second half. As we go to break, can you let people know how they can find you, maybe even how to find class action if they want more workshops on classism? Sure. Um, so class action is at classism.org. And uh, really a great organization will come to, you know, organizations to do class learning. And I am at AuthenticSeeds.org. Um, and all my stuff is there as well. You can find you on Instagram, Facebook, yep. all kinds of places. We will be back looking at systemic classes and some strategies to interrupt from your position of power wherever you are. This is Center for Transformation Change Radio. Dr. Becky Martinez, Kathy O'Bear. We'll see you after the break. Tune into the Dr. Diane Show, where we explore revolutionary expansion of mind, body, and soul every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. I bring over 20 years of expertise as a mindset warrior, perspective shifter, and unshakable optimist dedicated to helping you reach your wildest dreams in business, health, performance, and relationships. Join the discussion on the show. Learn more about me, Dr. Diane, and receive a free digital copy of my magazine at naturalnutmeg.com. Are you ready to branch out, to take a leap of faith, to love yourself and others fully? Join Erica Gifford Mills in her signature series, The Rooted Life. This virtual 12-week series will equip, empower, and enlighten you. This is a coaching series that allows both group and individual work. 12 weekly, one-hour sessions in the comfort of your own home. Schedule your free Empower Hour now at GetRootedRadio.com. That is GetRootedRadio.com. Are you ready to put down that drink or drug for good? 
Are you struggling to maintain your recovery from addictive behaviors? Do you need help with a family member or loved one who's in early recovery or battling addiction? Get the help and guidance you need by arranging a recovery recharged phone session with me, Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx, Certified Life and Recovery Coach. Call 1-800-889-1757. Make an appointment today or go to my website, pushybroadfromthebronx.com and click on the link that says Recovery Recharged. Don't wait. Get the help you need today. This is Ellen Stewart, Pushy Broad from the Bronx on TransformationTalkRadio.com. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. So excited to be back at Center for Transformation Change Radio, Dr. Becky Martinez, Kathy O'Bear. Welcoming back Dr. Tanya Williams from Authentic Seeds Coaching and Consulting. We are so excited for this next week. I just jump out of my chair because <laughs> I don't know much. I know enough to say nonprofit industrial complex because I read it, but I grew up believing nonprofit, social work, believing. I don't think I knew foundations were there. But even when I started realizing that they were helping um, and helping to really fix things. And I just have this little thought here that maybe they're part of the. So could you talk to us about your work in nonprofits and, and actually what might need to shift and change to really dismantle classism? How's that for a wide open space? Yeah, that's, that's big. And <laughs> I, you know, uh, well, what I want to lead with is uh, that people in nonprofits, because I, I do get a chance to talk to a lot of folks um, are doing the work of their hearts. Yes. And I think that that's important. Um, and <laughs> because nonprofits is nonprofits are um, built into an organis- organizational structure that is held by Oppression and classism is one of those oppressions. I really would, and I, th- I think some nonprofits are, are checking in on how the organizational structure, the um, cultures with which exist in those organizational structures, the re- relationships that they have with their, um, some people call them partners, Um, but essentially the folks that they are serving are all like classism, racism, ableism, all of gender oppression, all of the oppressions are included in the ways in which those relationships function. And so when I think about classism in nonprofits, um, you know, we can talk about a work culture, uh, like the, the, the need to work as much as folks in nonprofits do, that is fueled by a classist and capitalist um, like framework of like my worth is located in my work. Uh, and 
and non no <laughs> nonprofit folks they work so hard they care so much and because the system is set up to keep some people in need to keep some people feeling less than and not being able to see the system clearly for itself it is this kind of well i've got to give this service so that you feel better about what you're doing or have access to things and it's part of this like i i'm picturing um one of those like moving moving walkways at the airports it's just part of the system that is always and so i'm nonprofit i may be the nonprofit there's the foundation that's you know i'm getting the money from and nobody's looked around to say well wait a minute why are they the folks that that only got that have the money that have to filter through the nonprofit that then has to to go here the system is totally it's working mhm because we have not questioned it and i will say that people in nonprofits are working the foundations the folks on the ground and are who are like working with the families who have the money or um and most foundations are usually set up through family foundations there are some foundations that i've we've gotten to work with that um it's a different type of philanthropy that's showing up but i don't know how much work is getting to be done with the families in the family foundations to start to like question oh what are we doing actually to manifest and keep this whole classist racist system at work and that's deep work we um uh, another colleague and i got a chance to work with the family in the family foundation um and it was it was really great work they were totally open to it but because there's such a distance often between my wealth as part of a family and the actual people who my wealth is being served like that I'm giving my wealth to that's a lot of learning a lot of learning a lot of like mindset mindset shifting and ways of being like there's a lot of work to be done there Well, even as I hear you in the oh, I was going to say just like the, the grant writing process, right? Yeah. Had, like the structure for grants and then scope of works, and like and then deliverables and the pressure that nonprofits then feel uh, to um, or have to then fit all of that within particular deadlines um, when they're you know, and then life happens, right? Then a pandemic happens. and it's like oh like now we've got to switch everything that we've done and we won't make these deliverables and then how does the distance right between the nonprofit and the foundation or the grant or you know the funding structure like what's the flexibility or not and um how do they take like moments in humanity and consideration um because we know mm-hmm. that like money and capitalism isn't about money like isn't about humanity yeah and you know the just what you're saying capitalism and the white supremacy around it also yeah. um it's hard to 
it's difficult to break out of what we've always done. And right now, everybody's looking so much at race and racism that they're not seeing, you know, I always talk about class and race being born together because it was wealthy white landowners who said, oh, we need to figure this thing out about race because we got to keep our money. And if we only look at one of them without the other, we're in trouble. We like the other one's just waiting in the wings going, okay, yeah, look over there because I can still hold that up while I do my dirt. I've been learning more about the history of classism connected to racism. I'm watching the Gilded Age on HBO, much less reading novels about labor unions, some starting up and how governors brought in the National Guard with Gatling guns to shoot people who were organizing for just basic life humanity. And the rage, you probably can't hear it, but it's just, as I see so many folks organizing unions this last year, I just want to invite listeners to begin to wonder, how go back several centuries, if not longer, We've been challenging folks to learn about the history of racism and white supremacy on this radio show. I want to add the intersection of class because um, the part as I hear you, I'm getting uh, first, let me own that as a white upper middle class person, I deal with my class guilt by donating resources to nonprofits. So I just I'm going to look at that um, and I want to have you know, distribute resources that come to me in ways that are useful. So part of my rage is at myself, but I'm also angry at how so many of these large corporations over the centuries have been so exploitive. People have died building railroads. I could keep going. And then they build these foundations to build libraries, to have schools. And so today I want to be more careful as I watch at these foundations to also see what's behind the scenes and why did they build them? Is it to really, there's the term whitewash. I don't know what the class term is, class wash, but to say, look at all this great work we're doing as opposed to this exploitive anti-humanity work we're continuing doing. So. It's two thoughts. So one is <clears throat> I, I, because of my fifth grade adventure, I love me some good, art and, and theater shows. Um, there is a, a Broadway show that is on stage now called Paradise Square. And it is about Little Five Points uh, neighborhood in New York City during the Civil War um, mm -hmm. that Little Five Points had Black and Irish um, inhabitants that were interracially married. And the government came in and <clears throat> because of the draft, and this is race, but it also is class because of the draft, like started like breaking labor mm. and basically said, black folks, you cannot be drafted. And so we're going to take the Irish, the white Irish and, uh, it, it, it's such a, go, a good example of how historically it is important for us to understand not only race, but class as well. 
Um, and I do, I, I really, this is partially because I believe humans are good and that is just the, my bottom line. Um, there are, I'm sure of it, families that are like, yep, we have a whole bunch of money and we need to do something with it that is in service of others. I know that there are also people who probably advise those families and people, members of families who say, we have a whole bunch of money and we're going to get taxed hard on it. And so we need to put it somewhere. Um, and it would be great. I don't know if we could, I don't know if it's possible to go in and necessarily, you know, get a true understanding of how much depth and understanding the family has of its own wealth and how much the foundation, like who was exploited in order for that wealth to actually be in the hands of the family. Um, and if the foundation, like does the foundation talk about it? Can they talk about it in complex ways? And then can the nonprofit who is going after, and this is why it's an industrial complex, the nonprofit who's going after the money, like are they looking at particular um, organizations, foundations that have really done their work to understand where's this money coming from? It's complex. We built it, you know, as a nation in complex ways so that we would be overwhelmed by it and keep it in place. To do anything different, we got to understand it. And I think as I heard you around um, them being birthed together uh, um, in the way that oppression is set up, right? Um, I think that there are a lot of BIPOC folks that have middle-class plus and even wealth, right? Who, who may not recognize it in some ways and may like navigate, right? So we often can fight, fall into our marginalized space. Absolutely. And so then there's this like tension or this not paying attention to, because I'm really paying attention to race, but I'm not paying attention to how all. So then I show up in class, like in classism. I will raise my hand and say, amen, because that has been my experience. That's my Tanya's experience. I only in the last probably three years have been owning upper middle-class status um, because not only was I so much in a race space, um, like my understanding of even like giving and generosity, it one comes through a Christian lens, um, which is often unfortunately a savior lens. <laughs> uh, but I, it, I, I was so terrified of claiming a different identity of connection and relationship. I can remember facilitating a trainer trainer for class action. And we do a class, um, essentially a class continuum where you, you, you line up by your class, race class, and then we do movement to your current class. And I can remember race class, you know, I'm pretty early. I'm you know, that's, that has been a safe spot for me because it's a marginalized identity. I remember I crossed, I crossed the room 
when we went to race class and I immediately started crying mm. because it meant something about like, who am I? You know, I can do that around race too. the, the internalized, the internalization of it to take on a different identity. I've only known this way of being mm. and to move into a, in some way, uh, owning my power, you know, moving into a place of power, I was facilitating and crying through my facilitation mm. as I did that cross. So, yeah, Becky, absolutely. Can we have you back? Absolutely. <laughs> I'm learning so much. And Becky, I don't know where you want to go. I was wondering about the last few moments of, so how does classism show up in organizations as minutely? Because I've loved the looking at the macro systemic, because that balances out some earlier interviews we did, Becky. So but that's what I was thinking, but where do you want to go? I love it. Yeah. So day to day, how does classism and the invisibility because I know I see people with privilege, like class privilege, patronizing, condescending. They'd say, we love your mother. She's the secretary. She runs the school. And I'm like, so why don't you pay her more? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, day to day, we can go like <laughs> systemic from, um, and this I, I'm going to bring in uh, parental like policies because that's one of those places mm. where we don't understand that classism shows up, that we have policies in organizations for parents that normalizes, like, well, all of you all are at this particular class level. And so that means that you are going to, this parental uh, policy actually will fit for everyone in the class, in the organization. That is classes. There are single parents. There are uh, parents who, well, like, the family is such a place where we act like everybody's the same. And, and so organizations, if they're not looking at the, their parental policy and thinking about class when they look at that, that's a place. The, the, I'm going to go, like, because that macro-micro is we got to get our brains trained at that. The way that I move towards or away from a colleague who I regard using different English or uh, have an act different accent, um, how do I resi- regard them as smart or not smart? My sister just uh, texted me this morning. She works in corporate America. And uh, she texted me. It was such a beautiful text. She said, um, being in in-person <laughs> in-person meetings as your authentic self is so good. You can relax. It's easy. And I was like, right, you have worked 30 years in corporate America and have not been able to show up as your authentic self. That's both about race and, and probably about class upbringing. What's the right language that I have to use? This person didn't know a word. I'm using words and, and, and expect to, expecting that everybody has had that experience. And so, like, 
all throughout the organization, looking at people and, and wanting them to dress a particular way. That's, that's the interpersonal, like, who am I going to have relationships with? And then you go that internalized, like, I can't be seen with the secretary because, um, or the administrative assistant, because they don't have enough power in the organization. Classism, rankism, it's, it's everywhere. Everywhere. And I, as I'm hearing you, I even think of, um, you know, how do people spend their, their leisure time? Absolutely. And then, you know, when there's these office conversations, right, what is the, what is the judgment that have people have that, you know, leisure time in this way is valued, but leisure time in this way is, is not valued. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and then the other is around, and not just the language, but how we give the message, right? Is it harsh and brash? Nah, um, like what's the tone? And I think oftentimes we conflate that with race and it's a part of race at times. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it's like, oh, that's a very classed moment. Yep. Um, and we're not paying attention to those dynamics. Absolutely. I, um, I think about, and, and this was really important. I wrote an intergroup dialogue curriculum on classism but I couldn't do it without including rankism within, within organizations. And uh, my a co-facilitator that I work with, we always talk about how um, hierarchy in organizations is not bad. It's the power over hierarchy that we've learned mm-hmm. at the hands of classism and capitalism. And so, you know, Anytime that people buy into the rankism of like this person who is my, (laughs) who reports to me, who is my junior, um, they don't have as much voice. We've bought into the rankism. And that's why I say it's everywhere. It's because it's so in our pores. It's in our ways of being but because we don't have an understanding and the number of times we include classism on like surveys um, or something and people are like, well, I don't quite know. I'm not sure what my class is. We don't have the language or the understanding. And so we can't talk about it without the language. And that's why I love class class actions work. Uh, They really are helping people to move into a class conversation by raising awareness of my own class and my, the ways in which I have internalized classism. I wonder how many leaders and managers still have that belief people in my area, my staff should not speak up too much, not challenge me in public, um, do what I say. And while I grew up with clearly with those messages explicit, I'm not sure they're as explicit today. I think the implicit beliefs of you've got rankism, hierarchical classism, then you have power and to use that power and get back in your place. Don't step out of line. And again, there's a race class to it, a gender class. And so as folks are listening to the series that Becky and I are holding. Just invite you to keep doing your self-work. Where do you see yourself? What's the internalized classism from a marginalized place as well as internalized classism from a 
I'm better, I'm smarter, we are better, I have a master's degree, therefore I should be in charge, and just those messages, and how do you see them playing out, and, and we'll come back to having even more conversations. Ooh. So much. Final thoughts, reflections for us, Tanya. Yes. Things you want to, just wisdom you want to leave us with, hopes. We have hmm. a few minutes. I, um, I, this conversation has got me fired up. Um, and I really just want to underscore what you said about us doing our self work and really, you know, taking every chance possible. It's possible to watch television and think about class. One of the things I do is watch advertisements and think, what is the class message that this advertisement is giving me right now? Because that's usually where we get a lot of class stuff. Um, and so we can like really do that self-work constantly. I don't think it's possible for us to understand or think about a world free of classism if we don't understand what classism is. And so we can't even engage that conversation if we don't have the language. So go after the language. Yeah. When I think how many years white folks who are pretty aware and pretty good change agents have spent dismantling racism, understanding, doing self-work, I challenge folks with class privilege, middle, professional, upper middle, wealthy, to invest similar energy focus self-work. Yeah. Well, even as I hear your language, Kathy, around professional rates, um, let's divvy that out. And so like lately so I say blue collar professional and white collar professional so that it uplifts around language. Thank you. Yeah. And that's like, it's those uh, little and not so little pieces. Yeah. We just got to pay attention to it. Thank you. I and absolutely. Change. I love that, Becky. Um, the language are, it lives, all of these oppressions live in our language and our inability to hear what we are saying, but to just be on kind of, you know, let the messages move out of our mouths without actually catching ourselves and saying, what did I just say? Oh, this was actually a message or a, a tape that I heard that I'm just repeating. I don't actually mean that. What do I mean? It, it requires that kind of stopping. So, yeah. Mm. Speaking of stopping, so sorry, we're out of time. Could you just let folks know how to find you again and maybe class action? And thank you so much. We love you dearly. Sure thing. So class action, classism.org. I'm at authenticseeds.org. On Instagram at authenticseeds. Facebook is at authenticseeds. And always up for a conversation. So Thank you, dear hearts, for having me um, mm. as part of this work. We will see you all next month, we hope, for deeper and broader. Thank you for your deep self-work. Take care. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. 
That's drkathyobear.com. 